Good evening. My name is Tony Maiden, and I'd like to record for you this evening an excerpt from the book, The Rest of the Gospel, When the Partial Gospel Has Worn You Out, by Dan Stone and David Gregory. This book had a profound impact on my life when I first read it in 2007. I would say, through a specific chapter, chapter 22, I would say, God came. But what he really did was reveal to me by revelation who he was and who he was in me, in union with me. Chapter 22, The Gift of Misery. I used to buy my wife clothes as a gift. It wasn't, I wasn't very good at it and she would soon return them for something she had already spotted that she liked. But the intent of my heart was right. I wanted to give her a gift. It's lovely to give someone a gift. It's fun. It's exciting to receive a gift too, particularly if it's something you really wanted and you get it by surprise. It thrills you to get a gift like that. It's wonderful to get a gift from God as well. How many of us have had a gift from him? All of us, our salvation, God's son, his spirit, our family, our mate and children, if we have them, are all gifts from him. There is a gift from God, though, that we often don't recognize as a gift. I call it the gift of misery. I don't know if you see misery as a gift, but it is. Most of us who have been drawn to God either initially or in a deeper way later on, have been drawn through misery. It was pain, heartache, disappointment or discouragement that did it. The truth is that as long as we can handle life, we don't think we need God. We'll tip our hat to him, but we're doing just fine. Then when we can't handle life, we want him to get us out of the jam. And he tells us, I made the jam. Why would I want to get you out of it. It's the gift of misery. I've been through misery. When I lost my wife a few years ago, I went through misery. I went through misery 20 years before in my marriage. I knew that I loved my wife, but I wasn't feeling it. My feelings turned aside temporarily. I was ashamed of that. I hated that. I hated me. But God was right in the middle of that. He used it in Barbara's life. She stopped having me as her idol. Barbara and I lived together for 40 plus years. The first 20 were fine. The second 20 were, were precious. God used misery in my life to cause me to give up on my ability to make my Christian life work. My flesh was legalistic, moral and proud. I had to learn that given the right set of circumstances, I was capable of the most heinous act I could think of. I thought I was above that. The gift of misery prepared me for the message of union with him. Often in the scriptures, God's primary way of preparing people for him was the gift of misery. In the Old Testament, Joseph, Joseph was tossed into the pit by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused, then put into prison, unjustly forgotten, and left to languish. Eventually he became Prime Minister of Egypt, but that was a hard route. 
Humanly speaking, he had a right to be bitter. When his brothers were at his mercy, however, what was his response? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result from Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. God meant it for good. He used misery in Joseph's life not only to mature him in his faith, but also to bring temporal salvation to his father's household, the entire Jewish nation at the time. Joseph had the same privilege that I had with cancer. He could see the evil of his brothers, or he could see the purposes of God. He chose to see the purposes of God. Many other lives in the Bible illustrate the gift of misery, but I want to focus on three, Moses, David and Peter. Moses was raised as an Egyptian by Pharaoh's daughter. He grew up in Pharaoh's household. He had the finest Egypt had to offer. Some have speculated that like Moses, sorry, that like Joseph, Moses may have been in the line to rule the nation. <clears throat> Moses became aware that his true heritage was Hebrew, however, and that his people were slaves to the Egyptians. He wanted to be their deliverer. So he went out and killed an Egyptian who was mistreating a Hebrew. He reasoned, these people are going to see that I am really with them, that I am willing to kill for them, and that I am their real leader. They're going to respond to me. Things didn't work out quite that way. News gets around, doesn't it? This news got around not only to the Hebrews, but to the Pharaoh who placed Moses on the Egyptian ten most wanted list. Moses was afraid and ran to the wilderness of Midian, the middle of nowhere. The next time we see him, he is sitting by himself at a well. Moses was miserable. He had been raised in Pharaoh's own household. The whole world was at his fingertips. He had dreamed of liberating his true people, though. Now he had messed up, now he had messed that up, as well as forfeiting all the privilege he had grown up with and his future as the Egyptian leader. Talk about regrets, but God was in Moses' messes. Moses settled down in Midian, got married, had children, and went to work tending sheep. Then one day he saw a bush on fire that wasn't consumed. He went over and heard a voice saying, Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. At this point, 40 years had gone by since Moses fled Egypt. And 40 years, and which 40 years was it? The middle 40? A man's most productive years. When Moses, in his first 40 years, wanted to do a great thing for God, he could have said, Look at all the clout I have. I'm raised in Pharaoh's house. I can do something for these people. I can get them out from under this burden, maybe out of this land. He saw himself in place of human power. He didn't need God. He could do it. Moses was entering the middle third of his life, the most productive time, and God rejected his efforts. He was, he was in misery and he ran. He hid. He made a new life for himself in a strange land. It took him 40 years to become to become content. Now he's 80 years old and here comes God's call. 
God said, Moses, I have heard my people, and I have come down to deliver them out of the land of Egypt, of the Egyptians. Wouldn't you think Moses would be happy? This is what he had waited for, but no, he wasn't too thrilled. He probably thought, what took you so long? I was ready 40 years ago. Where were you then? But that was his problem. He was ready. He had power. He had influence. That's when God cannot use us. When we have all the resources, when we have the power package, when we can do it, then he can't use us. That's a hard lesson for us to learn because the world teaches us the exact opposite. What did God say to Paul? When you are at your weakest, I can be my strength in you. Second Corinthians chapter 12 verses 9 through 10. You can't entirely process this through your brain. It's incredible. It's unbelievable. But the Spirit of God in you resonates. That's the truth. That's when I can use you, when you don't have anything to bring to me. That's when I can use you. But as long as you think you are capable and able, you want me to share my glory with you. And I don't share my glory with any human being in that way. Moses was finally convinced and God worked through him for his people's deliverance. Thank God for your misery. It prepares you to be a vessel for his use, for his strength, not yours, to flow through. It doesn't seem to make sense, but in your weakness is your strength. In your misery is your hope. In your death is your life. In your nothing is his everything. It's amazing how God works. Out of the dung heap grows a rose. Out of misery grows a mighty man of God. Thank God for your misery. Thank God for your pain. Don't attribute it to the devil. If you do, paraphrase Joseph, the devil meant it for evil, but God turns his tricks on him and works it for good. Like Moses, David was a man on top of the world. He was the most powerful man in all of Israel. He could do anything he wanted. He loved God and was a man of faith that God had used mightily. But he saw another man's wife and sent to inquire about her. He had more on his mind than inquiring about her. We all know the story about David and Bathsheba's adulterous affair. After Bathsheba conceived, David plotted to deceive her husband, Uriah, into thinking the child was his. When that didn't work, he had him sent to the front line in battle to be killed. Now David was guilty of both adultery and murder. Just when he thought he had gotten away with it, the prophet Nathan came in and told him a story. David was a man after God's own heart. However, he was aroused to anger by the story until Nathan revealed that David was the story's villain. Do you think things could have gotten worse for David? At that point, he was about as miserable as it gets. He could have looked around to see if anybody had heard Nathan. Did anybody hear that? Maybe I can cover this up again, but no. We have the record of David's response in Psalm 51. It is a beautiful palm or beautiful psalm of misery. Be gracious, O to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, 
According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Psalm 51 verses 1 through 4. No excuses, just honesty. Isn't that necessary? What you hide, you must acknowledge. What you cover up, you must uncover. When did David do business with God? When he was at his lowest point. When do you do business with God? When your life falls apart. Until that happens, we play games with God. One time I was doing a retreat with a good friend, Bill Hodge. I commented on how many attendees we had had over the years in a certain city and how relatively few actual hearers we seemed to have had. Bill said, People come to hear us because they hope that God will get them out of a fix. We tell them that God made the fix. We ask them, Do you want God or do you want a fix for your fix? We say we want God, but what we really want is a fix. We want an escape. We want the pressure removed. When we don't have anything else to bargain with, though, when we don't have anything to lay before him but filthy rags, when we're miserable enough, then he is ready to deal with us. I have a little prayer that I begin saying after I read a book by William Barclay, who said that what Jesus said on the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit, was a child's prayer. It was the Jewish version of, now I lay me down to sleep. That touched my heart. Jesus on the cross, praying his child's prayer. So I go to bed at night and say, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit and my life and my will. I learned that prayer in misery after my wife died. I learned that prayer when I would roll over in bed and I was alone. I learned that prayer when precious memory would come across my mind and there wasn't anyone to share that with. What was happening? God was drawing me closer in my experience to my true life. He is my true life. Thank God for misery. Unlike Moses and David, Simon Peter wasn't a man of power and prestige. He was a fisherman with a heart for God. He hadn't learned what the Lord needed to teach him, though. When Jesus asked his disciples who he was, Peter had been the one who boldly declared, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood, including your human brain, did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 through 17. Peter had an oh, I see moment. He had a revelation, and he couldn't keep quiet about what he had seen. The next day, though, when Jesus began to talk about dying on the cross, on the cross Peter rebuked Jesus. This can't happen to you. This cannot happen to you. How self-confident, how, how assured. Jesus replied, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 23. My goodness, what a change. Jesus didn't mean Peter was a real devil, but he meant this. 
Peter, you savor the things of the flesh, just like Satan does. As you become a true disciple, you're going to see things differently. The night before Jesus' crucifixion, Peter insisted, I don't care if everyone le- everybody leaves you. I will never leave you. Bless Peter's heart. Jesus knew he meant that. It's just like some of my past boasting and possibly yours. Jesus knows we mean those words gushing out of us in love and adoration, but he knows we don't have the where for all to do it. He understands when we can't back up our boasting or dedication with anything but flesh effort. And he knows that when the going gets rough, we're going to run. Jesus replied to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Luke chapter 22 and verse 31. Whom do you think Satan asked? He must have asked the Lord. Satan may have asked for you. I want you to see what kind of God you have. In essence, Jesus said to Peter, I'm not going to jerk you out of the fire. I'm going to let you go through this, but I'm going to pray for you that your faith won't fail. I would have said, Lord, if you don't mind, I'd like a little more help than a prayer, wouldn't you? Give me a little more help here. No, I'm just going to pray that your faith doesn't fail. That is what God is about, teaching us to live a life of faith. Peter denied his Lord when they led Jesus away from one of his trials. Jesus saw him and Peter wept. Peter was miserable and the tears of repentance he cried were beautiful tears. Jesus had said, I pray that your faith won't fail you and, when, and once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter did that. He came back from discouragement and defeat, from denial of his Lord and Saviour. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to Peter at the Sea of Galilee and three times asked him, Do you love me? It was the same number of times Peter had denied him. And three times Peter could reply, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter was, what Peter was restored. His confidence was no longer in himself, but in his Saviour. A few days later, the Holy Spirit descended And the same man who had run away was now full of faith, full of fire, preaching truth to the crowd. Let the whole house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Simon, when you return, strengthen your brothers. God made that possible through the gift of misery. We've all had experiences in life that we wanted to shove aside, excuse and deny instead of using them profitably. But God keeps sending them until we learn our lesson. When we signed on with him, we gave him rights and privileges over our lives to do with us as he pleases. Of course, we thought life with God would always be pleasant and good. That's how we think when we're still babes. But now we can look back and we can say, Lord, that time I was miserable, that's when you became real in my life. That's when, in my prayers, I was really honest with you. That's when I had to tell you that I was really hurting. I had to lay it at your feet. Out of the old tree stump, you caused a new shoot, a new life to come. And, and, though that experience, and, sorry, and through that experience, you strengthened me. You taught me. You remade my life of that, into that of a disciple who is not above his master.
May God teach us to look at the misery in our lives, the tough times, the hard times, but say, yes, but, the holy but. Nothing happens to us outside of God's providence and sovereignty. Nothing happens in our lives about which we cannot say he meant it for good and he works it for good. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed that uh, chapter 22, The Gift of Misery. When I read this book, it was late 2007 after I'd been to the uh, Louisville reunion um, that was a, a meeting, uh, a tent meeting in the backyards of the Warren and Bunting family. And uh, when I went there in 2007, I took home this book and read it cover to cover. And uh, I found my, I found what I sought, and that was to know and understand, not at an intellectual level, but by revelation that we are one with the Lord in John 17. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed that excerpt. And if you're interested in uh, getting a copy of the book, please let me know. I'd be happy to to get a copy to you. It's available on um, Amazon Kindle, from which I read this evening. And um, it's also available in paperback book. God bless you. Bye-bye now.